And this morning we're going to be talking about these, these men called the Magi or the Magi. I think the right way to say it's Magi. I don't know. I've been trying to figure this out my whole life. Some Bibles will actually have the little transliteration at the bottom in your notes. Do you have a study Bible like that? It'll tell you how to pronounce things. I like that because I don't like saying the wrong thing over and over and over. But I think with this word Magi, you're safe. You can call it Magi. You can call it Magi. Whatever you want to do. You won't be judged. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them Magi this morning just because I think in my study Bible it says that's the way I'm supposed to say it. So we're going to look this morning at what it means to follow the star because that's what the Magi were doing. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I'm going to read it. I would invite you to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Follow along in your copy, whatever version you have. And the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own to their own country by another way. There are really uh, three different groups of people. One of them is an individual that we're going to learn from this morning. One of them are the Magi themselves. We don't know how many that there were. If you have a nativity scene at your house, how many will you have? You'll probably have three. We three, we three kings of Orient are, as the song goes. But we don't know exactly how many there were or how many was in their company. But we're going to learn about the Magi and something specific about them that the Lord wants to show us in this narrative or else it wouldn't be here in Scripture. We're also going to learn about King Herod. His name comes back up over and over in the birth narratives. 
And then we're also going to see later on in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts, we're going to see King Herod or one of his sons uh, described as well. So the, the family of King Herod plays a huge role in the Gospels and then also the formation of the early church. And then we also see again, you'll remember this group from our study in Mark, the group called the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. The chief rulers among the people, the experts of the law. We're going to learn something specific about all three of these different groups of people. And we're going to notice something. We're going to notice that Herod is described as the fearful. The fearful. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we're going to describe them as the full. The full. So we have the fearful, the full, and then finally the followers. And those are these magi who are following the star. They're seeking Jesus. They're seeking the Christ. They're seeking the one who's been born king of the Jews. And they may not know exactly where they're going. All they know is that God has appeared to them in a dream and told them that this is where they're to go. There's a star in the sky. They're following the star. And they won't stop. They've come from a long way. And we're going to learn several lessons from God's Word this morning on these people. Spoiler alert. You want to be like the Magi and not like Herod or the scribes. However, we struggle as human beings because we have the same temptations. We have the same things tripping us up in life that Herod did and that the religious people, and not only the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but all the people. The Bible says here that Herod gathered around him all the people and the religious experts and asked them questions. So first of all, we're just going to look at the question of who are the Magi? Who are they? Their identity is important. It's very important. Even though we don't know exactly where they came from, the Bible only tells us they came from where? The east. They came from the east. Now there are a couple of different, different theories about where exactly they came from. There are, really only, there are only two major ones. And one is that they were from the area of the Medes and the Persians, which is modern day Iran. Magi in the Greek New Testament, that word magi is actually a transliteration of an Iranian word. It was a name given to a particular tribe among the Medes and Persians. And these particular people were very intelligent. They were very, they believed in the supernatural. Sometimes people try to write them off because they had their their eyes in the heavens all the time and they were trying to ascertain things and you know divine what was going on in the world based on what they saw in the sky there are many depictions of the magi in those nativity sets that we have in our living room or wherever you might have yours or pictures of the magi are depicted in persian dress have you noticed that they have Persian robes. 
They have, they're wearing things that would make them look like some type of Persian philosopher king. They were renowned for being expert astronomers and they often gave counsel to leaders regarding human events based on what they perceived from the night skies. The Magi were monotheistic. They believed in one God. They weren't atheistic. They weren't polytheistic. They were monotheistic. This didn't make them God-fearers. This didn't make them Christians by any means. But they did believe that there was only one God. They practiced and they promoted strict morality. They were moral people. They believed in a difference between right and wrong. They were people of prayer. They believed in the necessity of prayer. They were God seekers in a sense. So the Magi in Matthew's gospel might be referring to this tribe within the Medes and the Persian peoples. These people would have had these types of Magi for centuries before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. A long tradition of Magi. Later on, this word Magi or uh, Magus or Magus, you might remember, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, a guy named Simon. Magus or Magus? Simon the Magician? All of that history of magic traces back to this tribe in Persia. Another view held by other theologians and historians for many years, including Origen of Alexandria, is that these men were not from modern-day Iran, but from modern-day Iraq. The area of Babylon. Particularly the land of Chaldea or Babylon. In Old Testament times, God sent his people Israel into Babylonian exile because of their sin against him. You remember that? If you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, God judged his people, sent them into exile, and they went off to a place called Babylon. We refer to it today as the Babylonian exile. There were different exiles that God's people went into. One of them was Babylon, the other one was to Persia. So whether these Magi came from Babylon or Persia, it is most likely the case that the reason that they're, they're looking for a king and they're looking at the stars and they're thinking about the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, is because of the influence of the Jews in their land hundreds of years before this. Now we have to remember what God says about divination. While we're on the subject of magic. In Deuteronomy chapter 18. God is very clear to his people about how they are to think of the type of magic, divination, looking at the stars, consulting mediums, things like that. These were things that happened in the land of Canaan. And God tells his people Israel, I know that this is going on there among the people, but you are not to be like them. Now listen to what he says, because this is really important for us, not just on the subject of magic and divination, but also on the subject of prophets. There are a lot of people today that will call themselves prophets. There are a lot of religions today that say we have a prophet, right? And he speaks for us. And whatever he says, whatever he writes, let it be written, let it be done. 
It's 100% trustworthy. Take it to the bank. Right? Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy. Starting in chapter 9, this is, or I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 9. He says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations, nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day the voice of the Lord my God let uh, the assembly saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore lest I die. So the people said, We don't want to hear from you, God. It's too scary. You're too holy. So God says, okay, I'll appoint someone to speak for me, a prophet. He'll be my mouthpiece. But when he speaks, you better listen. Because if he's appointed by me, he's delivering my word to you. Verse 18, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among you, from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which... He shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. That's pretty serious, isn't it? And, and brothers and sisters, this is why you will never hear me or any of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church Say, take my word for it. We will always say, open up your Bible. We, we are all accountable to God's word. But also when we do open it up, and it's not just for any of the elders here at our church, but it's for all of us as believers. If you have a brother or sister, kids, if you have parents who open up the Bible and say, this is what the Lord, word of the Lord says, you better listen. Because the word of the Lord. It's not some spirit of divination. It's not someone just pulling something out of thin air. It's not the way God's people are to live. It's not the way that we're to try to ascertain what is true and what is false. We have God's word. And so as these magi are coming, what kind of reception are they going to have in Jerusalem? Nobody discounts them. These are men of, of great wealth. I would think of great power. Most scholars and historians believe that these men didn't come by themselves. They came with an entourage of people. But we're reminded that in Old Testament times, God sent His people, Israel, into Babylonian exile because of their sin against Him. And while they were there, Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you might have heard of them. 
the three men who went into the fiery furnace and God saved them, these were men who went into a strange place, a strange place where there was a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, who worshipped a false god. And he had surrounding him all of these, the Bible says, calls them diviners, spiritists, mediums, who would consult their little magic gods. They were driven into captivity, the Old Testament saints from Jerusalem, lost their temple in 605 B.C. It was destroyed. But by the time Jesus is born, the temple is rebuilt. It's undergone a massive renovation project by guess who? Herod. Herod the Great. The King. But in the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Lord used His people and His prophets to reveal His ways to the people of Babylon. He revealed Himself through dreams to the rulers. And when the Babylonian diviners, when the Babylonian wise men could not interpret the dreams of the king, they sent for a man named Daniel. And Daniel interpreted the dreams for the king. Save your place there in Matthew. Turn over in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. There are a couple of places in this narrative about Daniel's interaction with King Nebuchadnezzar that I want you to see because it has bearing on our scripture passage this morning. Starting in verse 25, we're going to read through verse 30 and then we're going to jump to verse 46 through 49. So Daniel chapter 2. Verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. Quote, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Now, the king was greatly troubled by these dreams. Horrified. And he brought all of his diviners into the room and none of them None of them could tell him what the dreams meant. None of them could satisfy his desire. And so he's, he's just killing these false prophets left and right. And finally, they say, hold up. There's someone here. Okay? We're going to bring him to you. He's from among the Jews. His name is Daniel. So verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king. And he said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Now I want you to notice something there that is a key theme in the book of Daniel. We see it again in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before they go into the fiery furnace. What they say to the same king, Nebuchadnezzar, is they say, you send us into the fire if you have to. We're not going to bow down before your false idol. Because our God, who is able. That's what it's all about. It's about the God who is able. And Daniel says the same thing here to, to the same king. 
He says, you're having crazy dreams that are scaring you half to death. You don't know what they mean. But you've got all this wealth, all this power, all these connections with these diviners. But guess what? You can have a billion, if not a single one of them has the ability to communicate the truth to you, you're lost. You're lost. People today have surrounded themselves and gotten involved with so many different things, grasping at truth. But if it's not the Word of God, if it's not Christ, they are lost. I meet people all the time who are very religiously educated. They have a lot of experiences. And they think that diversity in religious experience makes them in good standing with God because they have a little bit of everything. Well, I know a little bit of Judaism. I know a little bit of Christianity. I've had Catholic experiences. I've had Pentecostal experiences, blah, blah, blah. So I think I'm pretty good with God. You can have a little bit of everything, but if you don't have the truth, you're lost. And that's what Daniel's saying here. He's saying, listen, king, you have all this power. You have all this prestige. You can snap your fingers and take a life. But you don't have the ability to know the truth unless God in heaven, the maker of all that you see, including yourself and your soul, unless he reveals it to you. You are lost without him. So that's what he says here. None of these wise men can do what you need done. However, verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Now, fast forward to verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. This is after Daniel told him the interpretation. And gave orders to present to him an offering and what? Fragrant incense. Sound familiar? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Since you have been able, there's that word again, to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Do you see that? And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Isn't it amazing the way that God works throughout history? It amazes me. It's most likely that the Magi that we find in Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, are wise men from Chaldea who were returning a centuries-old favor of mystery revealing. God's own people living freely and lavishly in Jerusalem under Herod's rule were in utter darkness the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was hundreds of years before. How would they see the light? Could it be that the same God who disciplined His people through exile hundreds of years earlier was still working and still loved them enough to arouse them from sleep? 
to give them a sign of his covenant faithfulness by sending these magi from the east? Did Daniel have any clue? 400, 600, however many hundreds of years earlier. Did he have any clue that his obedience to God while he was in captivity would have led to this evangelistic encounter in the city of David? Did Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego have any clue that their people would actually be living in Jerusalem again with the temple rebuilt? Imagine what they were thinking the whole time they were in captivity, thinking nothing that we do here matters. All we can do is just be faithful and obedient to God because there is no other God who lives. He does what He wills. We are simply in His hands. Daniel probably never thought such a situation were possible. And you're tempted, and I'm tempted to think that in our lifetime, nothing like this could be possible. Don't ever listen, brothers and sisters, don't ever, ever underestimate the creativity and the majestic sovereignty of our God. He is so good. This is how He works. He confounds the wisdom of the wise. Paul, one of the greatest philosophers who's ever lived, asked the question when writing his letter to the church in Corinth. He asked this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then he talks about the foolishness of the gospel. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem as a testimony to God's covenant faithfulness and to the wisdom of His will. Do you know, brothers and sisters, He is working in all things? He is working in all things in your life right now. He's working. Be fully submitted to Him. And watch Him work and worship Him as He's working, even in ways that you don't understand. Whatever struggle you're in in your life right now, He's working. He's mysteriously working, and you may not see all the sides of it, but if you belong to Him in Christ, God is working. And these magi are a testimony. These men of wisdom showing up in Jerusalem. What a miracle of God that they're even there. The followers, the faithful. And then we see the fearful, and that's King Herod. King Herod is afraid. He's afraid of what might happen if this is true. Why did King Herod respond in this way? We could read ahead and get the fuller part of the story where we see the effects of his rage and his anger. But already we see in verses 1 through 12 his interest 
in this so-called newborn king. Now there's a biblical history to this idea of heavenly signs. There's also a cultural history to it. But I want to turn your attention to Numbers chapter 24 in the Old Testament. Really briefly. Because there are times in God's word where he refers to rulers like heavenly bodies. Stars. In Numbers 24, 17, the Bible says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. It wasn't just a biblical idea. A picture of rulers being like stars. But in the ancient world, it was also this kind of a superstitious belief. You know, that whenever a comet would fall, whenever you would perceive, a, whenever you see a, a falling star in the sky. I love living in the desert, by the way, because you can see them a lot better when you get out of the city. It's just beautiful. When you see it, it's just amazing. But in the ancient world... They, many, many thought that when you would see a comet or a falling star fall from the sky, it was indicative that a ruler on earth was going to die or be overthrown. Maybe it was indicative of a coup in the government. And so what happened a lot of times is that whenever, I mean, it was undeniable when just common people saw it, they thought, oh, no, we might be losing another Caesar. As a matter of fact, when it happened during Nero's reign, in the New Testament times, Nero actually diverted attention by killing other leaders saying, oh, well, the star fell because they were going to die. But he's the one that actually killed them. So there's a lot of superstition surrounding this phenomenon. And so when these magi show up to Jerusalem and say, we've seen a star, the people they're listening going, whoa, okay, this might be a thing. And as a matter of fact, during the first century B.C. or uh, A.D., the, the fear of Rome and also the thinking of those not only in Judea but all of Palestine was that there was going to be very soon a ruler come out of Israel that was going to have great influence. And so when the wise men come in Jerusalem they say, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? It strikes fear in Herod. Because... His reign, his rule, his very life might be called into question. The prophesied doom of rulers and kings was often compared to those falling stars, or those stars that were moving. Now, we don't know a lot about what happened here other than they saw the star and then they left to go to where they saw they were supposed to go. When they got there, I don't know if they saw it when they were in Jerusalem, but when they left Jerusalem, the Bible says that when they left Jerusalem, they followed the star. The star was moving. So I don't know. We don't know how high it was at that point. Some scholars believe that at that point in Jerusalem, it stopped being a star in the heavens and it came down and it rested upon the place where Jesus was as kind of the glory of the Lord. Because we see that a lot in the Old Testament, don't we? 
the glory of the Lord falling on a place and uh, God's people being led by, by a pillar of fire at night. But for Herod, it was not good news. It was very bad news. What would it mean for him? It may mean that he would lose absolutely everything. As mentioned before, many historians think that these magi came with an entourage. At least people who were able to protect the goods and the riches that they were bringing with them. It may have been very opulent, this entourage. Something akin to the movie Aladdin. When, is it Prince Ali, is that his name? Yeah. When he comes into the city, you know, and there's all this singing and dancing, minus the genie, okay? That's our favorite part of the movie, the genie. <laughs> but something like that, his, their appearance was probably intimidating, maybe even to King Herod. They may have upstaged him a little bit, we don't know, but it may have influenced his fearful response. But in the end, Herod's fear would not give way to faith. Rather, his pride, his selfishness, would swell into a jealous rage that caused him to take the lives of countless little baby boys in the region of Bethlehem. Anyone who threatened him, he sought to end their life. Like Herod, today every human being has to make this same choice. What will you do when the real king shows up? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do when Christ is announced? What will you do when you learn that believing in Jesus and following Jesus is not just a verbal proclamation like Herod does here. Oh, you, you, you go and find out where he is and tell me and I'll go worship him. Yeah, we'll be there. I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about the Christ. We can't wait. There's a lot of excitement with church people, with nominal Christians as well about Jesus. But there comes a time in your life, there has to come a time in your life when you, going, when you go from somebody who says, I'm excited about Jesus with your lips to following the star. To following the star. To, 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 to getting, to being there at His feet and rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. There's a difference. There's a difference. Will you surrender and submit to Him like these wise men or will you like Herod refuse to bow the knee? Will you be forced to bow the knee on that day? Because the Bible says that every knee will bow every time we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that day. But you don't want to wait till that day. You want to do it today. You want to be like these magi who are excited, who leave home and take their riches and say, we want to see Him and we brought all of this to prove it. We believe God's Word. We believe what God has revealed to us. The old hymn says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? 
The announcement of Jesus' birth provoked the highest sense of human pride and self-preservation in King Herod. It provoked the most insidious sin within his heart. The rising of this new star indicated the setting of an old one. The same is true for everyone who comes to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You must die to self. Two cannot sit on the same throne. He must live and reign in your heart. And when He does, you will rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You will lay all your treasure at His feet, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your intellect at the feet of Jesus. Are you surrendered to Him? Herod was not, but you can be. And then finally, these Jewish leaders, what is their significance? We've already looked at their Old Testament significance from Daniel. What a different scene. It's like everything's turned upside down. Because in the Old Testament passage in Daniel, the scene is this. There's a king, Nebuchadnezzar, but he's a foreign king. He's not the king of Israel. He's worshiping a false god. He's got all these diviners around him telling him they're like the experts. And he's asking them questions. He's like, hey, interpret my dream. What's going on here? And, like, uh, and they start winging it, right? They start shooting from the hip. And then he starts shooting them, metaphorically. But now, now the scene is completely upside down. Now the king is the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, Herod. He's surrounded not by wicked diviners who are not worshiping the right God. He's surrounded by who? God's people. God's children, Israel. And their leaders, their scribes, their Pharisees and Sadducees, their professionals. All of the spiritual MVPs, the all-stars. And Herod asked them, Hey, where, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Do we, do we have this information? And they say, well, yeah, of course. They could probably quote it. Chapter and verse. Well, of course, King Herod. He, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Look, that's what he says. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a what? Ruler, They knew that this was going to happen. They had God's word. God wasn't hiding himself from them. They had it. They just weren't walking in it. They weren't walking in obedience. But then they say this, and this is rather damning to Herod. This ruler will shepherd his people. Herod didn't shepherd. Herod leveraged power. He did a lot of things that he did not shepherd. He had been good for them and good to them. Herod was not a Jew. He was Edomian of the Edomites. 
But he married into a very wealthy Jewish family, the Hasmonean family. And the people of Jerusalem were probably expecting a messianic king to come from that household because of all the great things that Herod had done for the people. He built racetracks. He built theaters. He also rebuilt the temple in 19 B.C. Historians tell us that he gave back tax money to the people during times of extreme economic difficulty. Don't you love that when you log into your bank account and you see money from Uncle Sam that he just kind of snuck in there? Hey, I'm giving you a tip, you know. Remember us. We're good to you. <laughs> Has that changed your view of the IRS? Don't answer. This is being recorded, okay? Behind the scenes, though, Herod was ruthless. He was a murderer. He killed several of his own family members, including his wife. His sons followed in their father's footsteps. One would later take the head of John the Baptist, if you remember when we were in Mark. That was Herod the Great's son. The Herod household did not respond well to people who told them what God's word said. Because that's what John the Baptist did. He told Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your father's wife. You're committing adultery. That'll get you in trouble with Herod and his household. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the people, they liked King Herod. He was doing great things for them. The economy was booming. And he had a little bit of a persona of religion. He was doing good things. For the religious people. He was opening up doors for the leaders. They did not speak against him. Herod was the king that they wanted. They weren't expecting a child in a manger. They didn't want a child in a manger. What could he possibly do for them? How can he help me make it on a daily basis? How can he provide me with a paycheck? He would say to his disciples things like this. The birds have nests and the foxes have holes in the ground, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You want to follow me? They had no room for a child in a manger or a Savior on a cross. A rabbi who fed his disciples bread and fish. Could Jesus, the Christ, make the economy grow? Could He save these people from foreign invaders? Another one of Herod's great accomplishments was the fortress at Masada. It was incredible. So Herod provided wealth, entertainment, protection, favors, and at least a perception of religious solidarity. With the people. See, these people, they didn't have room for Jesus because they were full. They were full. They were full of everything else. They had everything else, everything they had ever wanted. So when the news of this newborn king comes to Jerusalem, are they excited? Do they take the Magi aside and say, Tell us where he is? We want to come worship him. We've been waiting for him. Herod's driving us crazy. 
We're so empty in our hearts. We've been crying out for this promised Messiah. No, they don't. Why? Because they're full. They're fat and happy. They're good. And they think they're good with God. But they're not. Herod provided palaces for these leaders. And Jesus, he had no place to lay his own head. He couldn't make any earthly promises for people. So the Jewish leaders were filled up with all the world had to offer. They had no room for Christ. They had all the information. They could quote the promised passage of Scripture, chapter and verse. They could explain everything to you. But they had no room in their heart for the Christ. They had all the information. And just like them, many people today have a lot of information about Jesus. About the Christ. A lot of religious experience. Like the Jewish leaders in this story, they have all the information they think they need. But being a Christian is not about having all the information. It's about what you do with it. Are you following Him? The Magi were following the star. They were expecting the Lord to come. Let us follow Him today and live in expectation of His return because He's coming again. Let us be the most expectant ones for His return. Let it not be a stranger who comes into our midst and says, Have you heard Jesus has come? Or He's coming. Let us be the ones most expectant of our Lord's coming again. Because when He comes again, we're going to be raised to everlasting life. As the old Christmas song says, Come, thou long and expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free from our sins and fears, release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the saints Thou art, long desired of every nation, joy in every waiting heart. Are you following Him? Is your heart waiting for Him? I hope that it is.